When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 25th of October. Often it's hard to retain a dispassionate mask when writing about unemployment. No matter what you do, the silly, stupid, emotive language of betrayal, hurt, anger keeps on creeping in. Employers and the employed, everyone successful becomes the enemy because they have what you haven't got. The Department of Social, Community and Family Affairs, uh, which most people even today might refer to as the Department of Social Welfare, is responsible for delivering a wide range of services. Uh, pensions, benefits, sickness payments and a wide range of other uh, related payments also. We make payments to over 800,000 people each week and on an annual basis, we deal with uh, 1.5 million claim transactions and possibly over 300,000 reviews. Our total expenditure would be in excess of 4 billion. Hello, oh, Austin. How Karen. are you? Right. Nice to see you and again. You too. You're very welcome to Thanks the 50th anniversary much. exhibition. Thank you. And um, nice how long have you since you've retired now, Austin? Oh, what, it's eight years plus. Really, is that Yes, all? yes. And, and in fact, somebody has stolen my life since then. Really? It's going oh, so no. quickly, <laughs> honestly, you know, it's yeah, really going so yeah. quickly. Austin, the, the, uh, having a look around the exhibition here, you might be able to relive a few memories. I'm sure there's lots of uh, uh, artefacts and photographs and that that will oh, be yeah. dear to your heart. I'm sure, and in fact, it's only very recently... Yeah. that I heard you had mounted such an exhibition yeah. and I was interested. Right. In fact, I'm, ple- yeah, I'm yeah, pleased to yeah. be yeah. here. Well, it's great that you have the opportunity to yes, have a look around. Yes, thank you. I haven't been... I'm glad of this opportunity. Yes, I haven't indeed. been here before. Yeah, right. You know, lovely, okay. yes. Austin Morin worked in the Department of Social Welfare until the day before his 65th birthday in 1989. Invited back for the exhibition commemorating 50 years of the department, he remembers the early days. Oh, the official opening of Oris Figuermada. Estimate and address the cost of food for 700 guests. My goodness. Tea at five shillings a pound. That was dear then, you know. The official opening of Oris Vigirma, that was a, that happened in 1947. And it was a, a very big occasion. Quite a historic occasion, actually. Uh, and uh, the original intention, of course, was that this would be a, a headquarters for CIE. But uh, it was decided midway through the, I think, the erection of the building that uh, it would be um, become a Department of Social Welfare office. And as far as I know, some there was a transfer of funds to... Uh, purchased the building out of, I think, uh, National Health Insurance funds. I'm not sure of that. Uh, so that um, 
it, it became the headquarters of the Department of Social Welfare. And the Department of Social Welfare is a new department. It uh, embodied lots of services previously administered by other departments. Uh, there was uh, the Department of Industry and Commerce, which had the employment branch, the Department of Local Government, which had the uh, widows and orphans, and uh, the old age pensions uh, were the administrative end of that was handled by the Department of Local Government, but the uh, investigation end of it was handled by Revenue Commissioner's staff. Uh, there was also the Children's Allowance branch. Uh, children's Allowances having been introduced in 1944. Uh, the Widows and Orphans Pensions in 1935. The, the, the uh, Unemployment Assistance in 1933, the unemployment benefit in 1910, and the old age pensions go back to 1909, the 1st of January 1909. So this was a, a quite a big, quite a big occasion, and um, it laid the foundation for the. Uh, suppose one could say the administration of uh, uh, a whole range of uh, new and uh, increasing social welfare services. It must be remembered that, that uh, when the department was uh, uh, first was set up, it was in the years immediately after the war, and uh, rationing would have been in, uh, in operation at that particular time and uh, resources were scarce and uh, certain commodities were scarce and didn't come on stream properly for, for uh, many years after the war had ended and there was great poverty uh, about and there was uh, a very great need I suppose there always is for, for social services, but there was a particular need, I think, at that particular time. We ran into a, a, a recession, I remember, in 1956, quite a serious recession. Now, what the lead-up to that was, I suppose that was coming for, for some years. But we were quite busy, at any rate, in the 50s with, uh, with claims for unemployment, for unemployment assistance. One of the things unique to being on the dole is how easily and how quickly you lose your perspective. After a while you become desperate, placing greater emphasis on certain jobs, believing that if you don't get them, you're doomed. Every near success is a failure magnified a thousand times by your previous failures. Jack Murphy was over in England, of course. And he had known us before he went. He had known a few us. There was a few active fellows in the building trade and in all ways, in all walks of life, the building trade in particular. And uh, he came back and he organised a meeting with myself and Sam Nolan and Liam O'Mara. And he met us in Smith's and Haddington Road. And uh, 
He discussed the question of unemployment and he discussed the question of going over to England and he didn't want to be over there anymore and he wanted to organise ourselves here at home. And uh, from there it started, they decided I was the only one working and I hadn't much work, only a couple of days. Uh, they decided that they'd go to to the Labour Exchange in the following week and started to organise the unemployed. So they started off from there, and we put up <laughs> Jack Murphy, uh, thinking it was an embarrassment to Fianna Fáil, not that we expected to get him in, but that he'd get a vote, a good vote. And uh, he got in anyway. And... Uh, from once he got in, it 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 it, uh, it had a feeling of uh, well, it was uh, it was an awful thing. It was it could be said that I suppose the unemployed in Ireland were the first unemployment unemployed movement in the world to elect a member to their parliament, and uh, he was elected then, and uh, we went to Cork. We went to Waterford. They were demanding us that we go there. But um, it was an extraordinary thing, like the the influence that he had and uh, the fact that he was a TD. The Cork, Cork were powerful. There was thousands out at Cork. We marched from the Labour Exchange to the, the square in Cork and we had a great meeting, many of them there, and Waterford was the same. <coughs> We were marching, we were carrying black coffins. We had plenty of placards and plenty of slogans on them, uh, building workers out of work, people needing, needing houses. Uh, we could build them, we weren't allowed to build them. Uh, so forth, such as that. There was nobody arrested at all for any of the marches because they were all carried out genuine... Uh, they were carried out because the, the new the people knew that were were genuinely marching for to get work, and for to create work, and it didn't matter who got the work, we were out for to get work because unemployed was bad at the time. There was people in the town at the time that hadn't even a shoe on their foot, they hadn't even boots on them, they hadn't proper clothes on them. Uh, the problem that we had at the time was the problem with the government, not with any with any labour exchange or anything else, because the government the government of the country had to put a big operation into being, put a big operation going in order to solve the problem of ninety six thousand people. First of September. I feel very imprisoned and disempowered. As if these people can do anything to me. It's as if I feel I haven't the right to protest or complain. To survive the dole, you have to throw aside all conscience and honesty. It's a game of poker, and your job is to lie and bluff sufficiently well to ensure your survival. That, of course, is easier said than done. It's difficult for the model conscientious citizen not to feel guilty about free handouts, the insistent voice hissing, charity, charity. We came out of the 1956 recession. The 1956 was a very deep recession. And uh, we had these... Uh, uh, oh, uh, there were two big programmes. Uh, 
Mr. Whitaker, the Secretary of the Department of Finance, was the author of these, encouraged by Mr. Lamas. There was an act to social welfare act every year. It was, a, a, it was government policy. It still is. But one of the things I remember was the Redundancy Payments Act. And that was a step forward. That was to, to uh, give some kind of relief and compensation to people who lost their jobs through being made unemployed. And we, we uh, in, for such people, we, I suppose, coined a new word, which was redundancy. The 60s were, were good times, you know, in, insofar as... Uh, insofar as... There were the good times, there were the best of times that we'd experienced up to that time. The 1960s were indeed a busy time for the department. As well as redundancy, there was the introduction of the old age contributory pension, unemployment assistance for smallholders and the occupational injuries benefit scheme. These welfare changes were seen as a great step forward, affording necessary protection to very vulnerable people. Still more was needed. The 70s in particular brought with it a number of significant benefits, as Brian Andrews, Principal of Customer Service, Townsend Street Social Welfare Office, outlines. A number of uh, significant benefits, particularly directed at women, uh, were introduced in the 1970s. And these would include the unmarried mother's allowance, uh, the prisoner's wife's allowance, and the deserted wife's allowance. And I think what we were looking at there was that this is a recognition of the needs that were out there that the social welfare system uh, needed to, to provide for. Um, particularly in the unmarried mother's allowance, I think what you saw then was a recognition that this was a problem that we were facing in society and that uh, we did need to have some way of supporting that through a recognised uh, scheme. I claimed... Uh, the unmarried mother's allowance between 1974 and 1979. And, see, I'm not... There was money available. I mean, through the Home Assistance Scheme, there was money available. So it wasn't there was, you know, prior to the introduction of the unmarried mother's allowance, there would have been some um, social welfare through the Home Assistance Scheme to unmarried mother's allowance. So there was a system in place which meant that people weren't starving if they were a single parent with a child. So I think the difference that the unmarried mother's allowance made to people was that it gave an entitlement to um, assistance from the state and a recognition of the fact that single parents existed and therefore had a need and had a right to some assistance. And I think it enabled a lot of women to, to make the choice, um, although the choice was very limited because the amount of money available at the time was very small. I think, if I remember... It was about eight or nine pounds a week at, in the, the mid 1970s. So it did improve the situation for single parents, and I think you'd have to say that it did give them a choice between giving a baby for adoption and keeping a baby. Um, the unmarried mother's allowance was collectible at the local post office, which was okay. You went down on Thursday and you got your allowance. But the kind of additional benefits, like fuel, subsidies and I think it was just fuel at that time you had to go somewhere else to get that um, and you had to queue up and I just remember the kind of the abject poverty of that that you had to queue up with your docket at a turf yard and collect your your bag of of turf and I think those kind of things have been kind of streamlined and and improved upon that there isn't that kind of there isn't the same sense of of being handed out to I think that there was at that time 
As, as somebody who's lecturing in social policy, I'd look at the remit of the Department of Social Welfare in, a, I suppose, in a historical framework. Now, I suppose the broad sort of theme shaping policy at that time was a theme very much of, as it were, um, supporting women generally, supporting women in difficult circumstances. At the moment, the dominant influence is very much one of, of trying to see lone parents, most of whom, of course, are women, the overwhelming majority of them are women, trying to see them as, if you like, a group who have particular needs in relation to trying to return to paid employment and trying to link social welfare payments with other kinds of policies such as employment policies and training and childcare to help them to get back into the labour market. And that's where that's where that kind of set of policies now stands, I think. Uh, I suppose a very particular influence that it hasn't been documented in detail historically, but I suspect it's one that future scholars will uncover in relation to um, to lone parents, and it's very much a contemporary issue as well, is that you have to remember that then in Britain they introduced the 1967 Abortion Act, uh, and this in turn gave uh, explicit legal open access to Irish women to avail of abortions in, in the UK. And my, my suspicion is, my hypothesis, if you like, would be that uh, many of the uh, welfare-based Catholic welfare groups in Ireland and other groups would have proposed something like the Unmarried Mother's Allowance almost as an alternative to young women uh, relative to uh, the choice of terminating their pregnancy. Now, that's merely a hypothesis, but certainly in, in, certainly in other countries, um, discussion of income maintenance policy in these areas is linked to broader issues of reproductive politics and so on. But we'll have to wait for historians to do that research to see if that line of reasoning is correct. During the 1970s, there was a growing realisation that the most vulnerable people in Irish society had problems gaining access to social welfare entitlements. The 70s also produced changes of significant consequence for the taxpayer, whose contributions the department relied on to carry out its most essential work. In the 1970s, for example, uh, social insurance underwent uh, a number of significant changes. Uh, We had the introduction of compulsory social insurance, and then we had the move from the uh, social welfare, social insurance stamps uh, to the pay-related social insurance uh, system in 1979. And this was a significant move in that in the past people had social insurance stamps which they put on a card and these cards were surrendered at the end of the year. And pay-related social insurance then became uh, a deduction from wages at source Uh, which was collected by the revenue commissioners and was then subsequently passed on to the department into the social insurance fund. Uh, But no longer did we have uh, social uh, insurance cards and uh, stamps that we actually stuck on these cards. So there was a uh, maybe, in some people's mind, a move away from the very identifiable social insurance system that you had then to something which was moving towards the the taxation system in some people's minds. The supplementary welfare allowance system introduced in 1975 uh, is administered still uh, by the the health boards. Uh, While it is uh, funded from the the department, uh, the administration of it is is catered for uh, elsewhere. Uh, The aim of the allowance is to pay people who fall outside of social welfare entitlement um, through uh, whatever circumstances. Uh, also, there would be a, a, an issue there where people would be waiting on uh, payment of a social welfare benefit or claim 
and in the interim there would be a supplementary welfare allowance payment and uh, this began to address uh, a gap that, that would have been in the system prior to that. 5th of October. At least the queues for signing on are not as long as they used to be. I suppose with bigger numbers they've got more expertise at crowd control over the years. I'm old enough to remember the misery of queuing in the rain for over an hour. That appears to remain one of the eternal features of life on the dole. Waiting to sign. Waiting for Tuesday. Waiting for the welfare officer. Waiting for the rent allowance. For a job. For life to come back and grab you by the throat. In the 1980s, I think the picture was was quite uh, quite complex. And I, I'd be inclined to divide the 80s into two rough periods. One, say, from around... Actually beginning, let's say, in 1979 rather than 1980, literally. F- from that time up to around 1987, and then a period from 87 through to about 1990 and 1991. And, they're, and they're, they're quite distinct, really. I mean, the first period, as we, as we can all recall only too easily, was a period when unemployment um, doubled, when emigration rose. The public expenditure burden and taxation rose very, very rapidly. Um, and during this time, as was the, 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 the question that uh, everybody was asking, and the question we're, we're asking retrospectively is to what extent did that economic crisis and the political the political management of that crisis result in very, very serious reductions in the living standards of social welfare recipients and reductions in the quality of services and so on? And I'd be inclined to say with hindsight that the degree to which the Irish system of social security suffered retrenchment relative, say, to... Britain at the time under Mrs Thatcher's regime, regime and uh, the US under Ronald Reagan's, Ronald Reagan's regime, was that that degree of retention was actually uh, actually relatively small. Um, there were some outright reductions. For instance, we abolished, we eventually, um, we eventually um, reduced pay-related benefit. The value of children's allowance had declined in real terms for a period of years. One or two of the payments for about two years in succession declined slightly in real terms. But on the whole, there was no politically concerted or socially supported strategy of wholesale uh, diminution in the quality or the coverage of the system of social welfare. Where undoubtedly claims would have experienced enormous pressures would have been the sheer demand on the physical resources of the department during the 1980s would have been uh, would have been uh, something that could never have been foreseen. Bear in mind that in 1978 we had virtually full employment, five percent unemployment at at say five percent, and by 1986 this had reached 17 or 18 percent. So that the sheer scale of physical and administrative demand on the department through um, the growth unemployment was absolutely huge, and undoubtedly. And this undoubtedly underpins part of the, the the reason for the formation of INOU. The the pressures on unemployment services and through local employment exchanges and so on uh, must have deteriorated quite a bit. When the INU was set up in 1987, we were interested in job creation and we were interested in giving people the skills they needed to move into the jobs that were created. But before we did any of that, the, the most urgent need for unemployed people, if you ask an unemployed person in 1987, what do you want the INU to do to you? The immediate things they would say to you is about the level of poverty they experienced with social welfare payments and the degree of indignity and compromise they felt in signing on. And they were the first two challenges, I think, for the INOU. In 1989, we ran a fairly big campaign about the conditions of people when they were signing on. We were pointing out very basic things like lack of privacy, issues around confidentiality. Everybody in the exchange knew your story if you had one to tell to the Hatch clerk. Um, 
the complexity of means testing, officials being being rude and treating people as if they hadn't got a right or an entitlement to the payment. So there was a lot of issues about the, the basic conditions in which people were signing on, queuing in the rain, for example, really bad opening hours, offices not being open when they should have been open. Particularly in the rural areas, there would have been a lot of dissatisfaction with the, with the, the service. So the most immediate issues for people were that the day-to-day trudge they had in signing on for payments. In some places, there was still daily signing, for example, in some areas. So some of the immediate actions or campaigns that the INU took on would have been to try and highlight the, the bad conditions that people were signing on in and look for improvements that have gradually come on stream, but there are still some areas where the conditions are as bad as the 80s, and there hasn't been any improvement. But overall, there have been. Well, in Thomas Street back in the 80s, I remember in a queue, I could be queuing for an hour just to sign on, and then you had to go on another queue when you got your shit to get your money. And, excuse me, and that could have been about another 20 minutes, so an hour and 20 minutes. And it was queues outside the door, right to the undertakers next door in Thomas Street. And that's what it was like in the 80s, you know what I mean? It was dreadful, you know, to sign on. We in the colony centre, when I was working there, not working, I mean, when I was there on a voluntary basis, before I took up the social employment scheme, me and one of the three labours, and we were very concerned regards to women, pregnant women, and they were queuing up to get the doll before they went on maternity leave. And it was very thing to them. And we approached the supervisor, he's left now the Tom Street doll office, and we approached him at the time and we said, look, this is very unfair for women queuing and their back, they're getting pains in the back of their legs. Can you not do that? And I think he says, this is not a charity. That was his attitude at the time. But we went over his head to his uh, manager and we didn't like what he, what he was saying. You know, he was treating women as dirt or anybody. So we went over his head and we wrote a strong letter to the Minister of Social Welfare at the time and he wrote back and he said he was looking into the matter. And he said if he didn't do it, that we would highlight it and we would protest outside the trailer labour exchange and we would protest outside the doll. And I think when we got public support, I think it's a great thing, you know, to get something going. I think the Department of Social bent down. And what they've done is they divided up the women, say, from different areas around the whole Dublin Day. You come in, say, Tuesday. You come in Wednesday. You come in Thursday. So, in other words, the queue was dropping down gradually. And the women, say, will say heavy pregnant, didn't have the queue. The early 80s, as it were, was a period, in a sense, of, 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 of the Department of Social Welfare and Minister for Social Welfare attempting to, as it were, hold the line in a rather difficult situation politically and financially. We made matters worse, however, and this is where I think policymakers at the time can definitely be blamed. We, we made matters a good deal worse in the in the mid nineteen eighties by by making rather a mess of the attempt to introduce the equality directive, impinging on the rights of women in particular in social welfare. Um, and this this directive was being implemented through the nineteen eighty five Social Welfare Act. And cutting a very long story short, indeed, I mean one of the, the net effect of the act and the net effect of the way we were impl- introducing the equality directive was to reducing the short term the incomes of some of the very lowest income families in Ireland 
And that directive need not have been implemented in that way. It was left to sit for a long period of years, somewhere around 1978 or 1979, when nothing was done about it. And then the attempt to implement it was, to say the least, somewhat blunt. And that and this happened in 1985-1986 at the height of the economic recession, at a time of political tensions between government. And, and, and this all at the time would have helped to contribute to Minister for Social Welfare and the Department of Social Welfare having a rather poor public face. Equal treatment for men and women in matters of social security was essential to accord with EEC Directive 79 stroke 7. In 1984, however, the media highlighted continued discrimination against Irish married women in social welfare matters. Married women were paid at a lesser rate than married men, single men or single women. Furthermore, married women were paid for three months less than all other social welfare recipients, even though they paid the same rate of PRSI. In January 1985, relying on the EEC directive, Nora McDermott applied for her extra three months unemployment benefit at her local employment exchange. She was told that the bill had not been implemented and she was not entitled to be paid. Now around this time, Mary Robinson had letters in all the papers asking women to contact the Free Legal Aid if they wanted advice, which I did. And she asked me if I would be prepared to take a case to the High Court. And so myself and Anne Cotter consented to go ahead with this case. We took the case to the High Court and after two hearings the judge decided that it should go to the European Court of Justice. We got a hearing in October 86 and in February 87 the court found in our favour. We then had to come back to the Irish Court for ratification and the justice in the High Court awarded us the higher rate of pay and the extra three months benefit but didn't allow us the dependency rates for husbands and children. We once again consulted with our barrister Mary Robinson and decided to appeal the High Court decision in the Supreme Court which found that the case should be referred once again to the European Court. So really this case is unique in that it's the only case that has had two hearings in Europe. Then again in March 91 this court ruled in our favour and we won the case in respect of our adult dependents and child dependent rates. The case closed in June the 5th 1991 after a six and a half year battle but it was a very worthwhile case for us because we were assured that the European judgment could be relied on by all married women in the state. It took a further three years before the Department of Social Welfare did the honourable thing and decided to pay the married women all they were owed and they ended up getting all the back money and interest accrued. I think in like most situations with the benefit of hindsight you might decide that maybe we should have done things differently. But at the time, I think we have to go back to the thinking at the time, uh, the whole new um, approach in this area, and the very significant costs that, that were involved. And I think decisions were taken at the time in the light of legal advice um, that had to look at the implications for the social insurance fund. Maybe um, sometimes that's necessary and that's a procedure that we need to go through in order to find the correct way of doing things. It's also true to say, moving on to the second period, that from 1986-1987 onwards, it was a very different climate for a number of reasons. First of all, the Commission on Social Welfare had finished its work in 1986 and it had set out what it saw as a programme of reform and improvement and development. Um, and, And it placed firmly on the agenda for the first time ever the need to have some kind of systematic policy about the about guaranteeing an adequate level of income for all social welfare families and households and social welfare dependents and so on. And it also set out a range of other important reforms. Now, the Department of Social Welfare as a department, I think, um, seemed to have embraced that 
policy framework, as a framework within which it would attempt to move policy forward in the, in, in the following decade. Uh, around the mid-80s, we had a structural change in the department where we set up the operation side of the department and we call it Social Welfare Services Office. That was to allow that part of the department concentrate on the day-to-day delivery of the service. We talked at that time about the client being paramount, which was a, a new language for the civil service. Uh, we also talked about delays in delivering uh, decisions and claims to the customer. So we looked at process times and we made it our goal to improve on those. And since the mid-80s, we have made dramatic improvements in the time it takes for somebody to be awarded, say, an unemployment assistance claim or whatever. And we did that by concentrating on this, uh, and we set that as a goal. Uh, so looking at the customer, uh, delivering the service to the customer from the outside in uh, became a different way for this department to operate. Recently, everything appears like a drug dream. Life suspended, hanging, unfinished in the air. At least the old embarrassment of wondering will the neighbours see is ended. They're in the same queue. Whilst the primary aim of the department is to ensure payments are made on time to its customers, the department insists its role has widened since its inception in 1947. The name change to Social, Community and Family Affairs is meant to reflect this movement away from the prime responsibility of paying income maintenance to taking a more comprehensive view of the needs of the people it caters for. I think the Department of Social Welfare in the 90s probably looks um, a lot different than it may have looked some years ago in that we've moved away from just paying people money uh, to take a more comprehensive view of the needs, the requirements, and looking at things like their inclusiveness in society, uh, looking at their problems in relation to household budgeting, uh, their needs in relation to re-employment opportunities, re-education opportunities. Uh, we've had uh, quite a degree of emphasis on involving customers through consultation, through surveys. We have customer panels in place where customers sit down and talk to us about the way services delivered to them. We're very much involved also with the wider community and the voluntary sector. And so we see what we're doing out there as uh, contributing to people's well-being in society. And we do this in partnership with other bodies and uh, other departments and agencies out there. Uh, So I think if you go back to the original aims of the department, while they were laudable and in funny way, they, they may not seem that much different in a mission statement. I think we've moved on from just paying people money and trying to deal with what was a particular problem at the time to looking at what people need and how people want to be involved in society. And I think that's fundamentally different. One of the things that, as a department, we need to be conscious of is that through the Delivering Better Government initiative, Uh, Certainly we've been asked, uh, and all departments have been asked, to look at uh, integration of services. In other words, that the customer out there uh, should be able to access a number of different services at one point of contact. Uh, It would mean that a number of departments, particularly if you look at us in the social services area, 
would have to have some kind of gateway that will allow people to not only deal with this department but a number of departments at one visit. Uh, and this is something that uh, we'll be exercising a number of departments over the next couple of years. A recent move in the last year that we certainly welcomed was the movement of the Disabled Persons Maintenance, Maintenance Allowance from the Department of Health into the Department of Social Welfare, as it was at the time. That's improved the delivery of the payment and the take-up of the payment, so people are getting better information about their right to that payment, and we very much welcome it. And if there's a movement in the future to bring more and more payments under the administration of the one agency, we would certainly welcome that. The idea of the one-stop shop where somebody could look after their rent needs, their emergency payment needs, their medical card needs and their basic weekly payment needs, that would be a very welcome development. And we feel the department should prioritise the movement of the supplementary welfare allowance system back into the Department of Social Welfare. The delivery of that payment of that system at the moment is the one that we get the most complaints about. There are still a lot of complaints about the physical conditions in which people wait, very cold offices, physically eroded, peeling wallpaper, old signs, very long queues. The average queuing time would be about two hours still um, and a total lack of privacy. So I think how we treat our most vulnerable people is a big indication of how sophisticated we are as a state. And, you know, I think we should be trying to aim at that and target the movement of that service and the upgrading of that service into the mainstream social welfare service. I think that would be a a good short-term goal for the Department of Social Welfare. In the 90s now, it's different now. I mean, you sign once a month in the Dole office and you go down once a week to the post office to get your money. And it's great also, but there again, in some of the post offices, there's a queue because you might have other people coming in paying television stamps and other business to do with the post office. It's just like going into a bank when you're doing bank business. It's, it's not fair on those people. And maybe it could be only two people behind the post office. And, you know, maybe it should be the Department of Social Welfare should have seen that to put more people in and maybe train people, civil servants, for them to kind of take up the thing and kind of cut down the queues and to be more efficient. You know what I mean? When you look at the current IRA system, even take out the Department of Social Welfare's famous SW4 booklet, as they call it, listing out all the benefits and rights and entitlements and so on, one is struck by the sheer range and complexity of all of the payments. I can't instantly count them and, and give you an, an, an exact number. And so when you see that, that number and complexity of provisions, you're, in, you're inclined to the conclusion that nobody surely could fall through that kind of net. Uh, and I think the answer probably is that um, the Irish system of social security meets the income maintenance needs of the of a wide segment of the population uh, moderately well. And the question you're then left to pose is where are the where are the little kind of um, the little holes in the system as it were? And I would think you could probably identify a number of areas where there are where there are kind of holes as it were. I mean, the first, and this is not necessarily. Um, a hole in the social welfare system in that narrower sense, but more um, deficiencies in the system which arise from um, the relationship the social welfare system has to other areas of public policy. So that we know, for instance, that even though uh, there has been a huge growth in recent years, particularly in Dublin, but not only in Dublin, in the use of rent allowances by young people to pay for their private rented accommodation, we know that the extent of homelessness among young people and among women with children and among um, uh, 
population generally. We know the extent of homelessness is rising. Despite the fact that there is an income maintenance there, payment there supposedly to help people procure housing. Um, and this is happening for quite a complex series of reasons, but it's partly to do with the fact that the system of rent allowances, as we call them in the Irish case, is very poorly coordinated with housing policies, which themselves have deficiencies. So as a result of that, you can find people, uh, young people on the streets who need accommodation, who aren't being provided with accom- adequate accommodation directly by the housing authorities, and who find, for instance, that, they have, that because they haven't got a um, secure home address, that they're not entitled to a health board payment or rent allowance to help them pay the rent. So that, that would be an example of a whole. It's not necessarily a problem attributable entirely to social welfare policy in that narrow sense, but more to the articulation, as it were, of social welfare policy with other policy institutions, in this case, housing. The social uh, welfare system that we have uh, in this country, as in many other countries, is a pay-as-you-go system, uh, which means that uh, money paid into the funds uh, on an ongoing basis are paid out in that given year. This may well mean that uh, in the future, and it's it's an issue that's facing a lot of countries at the moment, and some of them are meeting it quicker than, than we might be, that in the future, as we move to a, a demographic gap where we have uh, a substantial number of elderly people in the community and maybe less than at present pr- proportion of people in the working force, that it will become a problem to fund things like pensions on an ongoing basis. And a lot of countries, particularly in the European context, are beginning to address this as a very serious issue. And all the different permutations of how you do this are being examined at the moment, be it from social insurance cover, extension of cover, to private pension cover. And you may be aware in this country at the moment there is a a national pensions initiative and an encouragement to people at all ages to look at their pension cover now because it's the type of issue that when we're into it, it'll be too late to start addressing it. And I think now is the time for us to start seriously looking at this. It's always difficult to look ahead to the year 2014, 15 or 2020, but I think it's something that we have to do at this stage. I think the department, as a department has every good reason to be proud of its achievements over the last 50 years. Not perfect. Who's perfect? 3rd of November. Now that my social welfare has been sorted out, I've decided to become a new woman, refreshed, reborn. My attitude towards these good social welfare officers has been changed. Changed utterly. No longer are they the blood-sucking vultures... Instead, they're decent people trying, and with little gratitude, may I add, to do an impossible job. How could I have been so wrong? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.